Okay, well, it's a pleasure to get a chance to introduce Howie and his book. You know, we, we often say that, that, uh, that climate, the climate issue is a marathon, not a sprint, but a marathon. And, and those, those, this gang knows that, that there's, no, there's no happy end of that marathon without, without some version of, of, capture, of, car, of carbon capture and storage. Almost all the scenarios, one way or another, you don't get there without capture and storage. And, one of the, and, and, and what Howie has been running a marathon himself on this issue for almost three decades here in, it, it, at, at Mighty and in various organizations that existed before Mighty. And, and what, he's, what he's done here at the, at the invitation of the press is to put that, that personal experience down for a broad, broader audience. It's the, we just need so much of this kind of, kind of thing. And what Howie's done is, I think, is really, really ma magnificent in, in, in that the, the way that it brings together the technology at a level that, you know, you, it's not for the, for, the, for the grade school students to do. But it takes some level of scientific knowledge to read it, but, it, but it, for a wide audience on the technology and serious about the economics and very good on the politics and and on the history of all this, and told through his experience of three, three decades doing this. And because it's, because it's got this personal style, you learn unusual things. For example, you know, why is it when you, when you, when you, when you spill gravy on your shirt, you can't clean it up by dipping your, mac, your, 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 your uh, you can't, by dipping a piece of cloth in your, in your water glass and cleaning it off. Why doesn't that work? Read this book and you find out. <laughs> and another thing is that, that we're in an era now, we know in the country, we're in, we're in an era where we're all concerned with, with, with the, the degradation of, of the laws. At the, the, we're in a nation of laws and we're, we're fighting to preserve that. And one of the hidden stories of this book is that Howie is preserving the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> Oh, maybe uh, buried, buried in a chapter in this book is 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 uh, controversy over this issue that's been going on for years. Where Harry has, or Howdy, Howie has fought the, the good fight. So all that is all that is encapsulated in in, in a little volume, which is eminently readable and available to a long a large audience. And so, congratulations, a great job. And I'll turn it over to Howie to talk about it. I get this. Thank you very much, Jake and Martha, for the nice introduction, and thank you all for coming, and thanks for Mighty for organizing this. And what I'm going to do uh, uh, today is sort of walk through the book and, and do a few readings and give some uh, context to them, uh, and hopefully I can do it and have time for questions, too. So uh, first time I'm, I'm doing it like this, so I, we'll see how the timing uh, uh, works on uh, all this. Let me grab the uh, slide here. So first, let me tell you how this came about. Uh, it was almost two years ago now. I was just in my office a normal day, and I get an um, email from uh, MIT Press. So this was like November of 2016, says, would you be interested in writing a book for the uh, Essential Knowledge series, which this is part of? And it actually was very good timing for me in, in that uh, a consortium that I had run for 16 years, uh, uh, we had just finished and uh, 
I was sort of looking for a, for a new project, and uh, so it was perfect timing, so I said yes. Uh, I had to go through the um, proposal process, which, is, which uh, took about three months, where I had to write a proposal and get it reviewed. And actually, that was very good because it let me think through the book, and, and the structure of the book uh, was set during that. And then February of that year, I started write, of last year, I started writing, and the writing process took maybe about six months, and then there were some uh, other things we had to do. Uh, we were originally tried to get the book in in September of last year to get it out this spring, but then they told me they wanted it in the fall release of, of this year, so my deadline got extended to December. So I had everything in in December, and I waited until uh, a few weeks ago when the book came out. A few things happened. I had to do some copy editing. I had to review and the, and the page proofs. But basically, I just had to sit there for uh, eight or nine months uh, until the book came out. So uh, sometimes these things, you do it, and then it becomes almost anticlimactic. But uh, it's uh, uh, good that it's out. And I, I'm going to walk through it. Whoops. Walk through it a little with you. So this is. Uh, eight chapters for the books, and, I, and I'll touch on each of the uh, eight chapters as uh, we go through this. Uh, that press liked a, a short title, so the title's Carbon Capture, but I use that uh, synonymously with Carbon Capture and Storage, uh, or CCS, uh, throughout the book. Uh, so that's so it's not capture, but uh, 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 the broader uh, suite of technologies. So, um, it, it, Whoops, let me go back a second here. Let me, let me start with the uh, first reading here from the introduction. I just had cataract surgery and I'm waiting for a new pair of glasses, so uh, I can't see, I can't read with these glasses, so uh, I have to take them off. Um, the burning of fossil fuels, namely coal, oil, and natural gas, releases carbon in the form of carbon dioxide. The CO2 becomes part of the exhaust gases that go up the smokestacks of our power plants and factories, out the tailpipes of our automobiles, and up the chimneys of our homes. These CO2 emissions are a major driver of climate change. The idea behind CCS is to capture the CO2 before it's released to the atmosphere. Capture technology exists today with its roots in industrial processes that cleaned up gaseous products by removing acid gases like carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide. The question then arises, what to do with the CO2? There are some opportunities for using it, but they are limited. As a result, most current CCS strategies call for the ejection of CO2 deep underground. This forms a closed loop where the carbon is extracted from the earth in the form of fossil fuels, and then the carbon is returned to the earth in the form of carbon dioxide. So, for the, for the first slide here from the, uh, the first chapter of the book, sort of reiterates uh, 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 in a very simplistic form uh, the climate system and, and what we can do about it. So we start here with human activities, and as a result of human activities, including uh, energy use, but also agricultural practices and other uh, activities, we release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and their concentrations are increasing. This then uh, affects the global temperature, uh, which is rising, and has impacts on Earth systems in all sorts of manners, whether uh, it's bigger storms, um, you know, droughts, floods, uh, 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 things with uh, vector-borne diseases, and a whole list of items. Uh, 
uh, can happen, and then this comes back. Well, well, maybe I should say on the Earth system, things like sea level rise, and then that comes back to affect uh, the human activity. So this is a loop, and um, we also have a, uh, another arrow that connects the atmospheric concentrations to the Earth systems. That arrow goes both ways. So, uh, uh, for instance, um, uh, one thing is uh, the oceans and the vegetation, the, the, the forest can take CO2 out of the atmosphere, and in fact, the ocean is a big sink, uh, otherwise our atmospheric concentrations would be larger. But it can go the other way, and people fear if the, if the temperature warms up, uh, there's a lot of methane contained in, say, the permafrost, and if that melts, that methane can go back into the atmosphere and have a, a, a big impact. So what are the ways we can intervene in the system? The first is mitigation, and that uh, means we uh, uh, will reduce the amount of CO2 in the, in the atmosphere that we emit uh, from human activity, and carbon capture and storage uh, is one of the major uh, mitigation pathways. You can also have adaptation, uh, which is uh, something that's probably going to be necessary. Uh, uh, so if we have sea level rise, uh, you may have to have uh, flood control and, and, and maybe dikes to, to help um, uh, preserve uh, 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 different human activities and property. Uh, another area that I'll talk a little more about here is carbon dioxide removal. We actually taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it in, 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 say, the ocean or in deep geologic reservoirs or in the soils and vegetation um, that you can do. And uh, finally, there's something called solar radi radiance management, uh, which is trying to, say, maybe uh, put a little sun shield on the earth to, to reduce the incoming radiation and sort of counterbalance um, uh, uh, the, the warming. And uh, there was a National Academy study back in 1991. Uh, it was a, about this thick, very heavy. And it had a, about a 10-page appendix on it uh, talking about different uh, geo, what's called geoengineering options. And of course, this is what the press loves. And uh, there was a two-page article in uh, Newsweek on that big report that just talked about that 10-page uh, appendix. It was called On the Wings of Icarus. Um, so it's something, but here's what I say about uh, solar radiance management in the book. By far the most controversial intervention strategy is solar radiation management. The idea is to block incoming sunlight to cool the earth in order to counterbalance the warming caused by enhanced greenhouse effects. The inspiration for this strategy comes from nature, where volcanoes cool the planet by spewing ash and sulfates high into the atmosphere. Thus, cooling, this cooling can last for a year or two. In New England, in 1816, is known as the year without a summer. The cause of this unusually cold temperatures was an event on the other side of the globe, the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia in April 1815. More recently, the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines in June 1991 depressed global temperatures by about half a degree Celsius for a couple years. Uh, solar radiance management mimics nature by injecting particles high up in the atmosphere to block incoming sunlight. I look at solar radiance management as a Hail Mary pass in football. It rarely works, 
but when it's your only option, you try it. I think the best strategy for humankind is not to get in the position where we need to a Hail Mary pass. That means we must mitigate, mitigate, and mitigate some more. That's where carbon capture can make a big contribution. So, let me go to the next slide. And uh, this slide here um, uh, shows uh, different, uh, how much fossil fuels we have. So this is chapter two, and this is uh, what they call recovery reserves. This is an economic uh, thing. These are what's on the books of the oil companies, for instance. And this is how much we're pretty sure we have in the ground that can recover and burn if we want. And these are the carbon budgets, how much we're allowed to burn to stay below two degrees C or three degrees C. Actually, I think since I did these numbers, this new report coming out uh, in a couple weeks have upped those carbon budgets a little. Uh, but but the, the idea is the same. So uh, if we want to, um, if we want to, uh, control climate change and, and, and stabilize at these areas, we have to leave a lot, a lot of fossil fuel uh, in the ground. So let me, let me do a few readings from the fossil fuel chapter. Uh, first on um, a carbon footprint. Because fossil fuels are ubiquitous, just about everything we do has a carbon footprint. Every day we make dozens or even hundreds of decisions that affect its size. This includes what we eat, because meat has a higher carbon footprint than vegetables, how we get around, either by automobiles, mass transit, bicycling, or walking, that all have different carbon footprints. When we go shopping, everything we buy makes an impact, from the manufacturing of the item to, the transport, to its transport. The impact of heating or cooling your home depends on the kind of fuel you use, the efficiency of your heating system, the insulation of your house, and the setting of your thermostat. Turning on the television or computer adds to your carbon footprint as well. Um, there's always been questions about how much uh, fossil fuel we have. Uh, uh, when I first got my first car in uh, 1974, there were something called gas lines. Uh, uh, some of uh, you older folks here remember that. Uh, the, uh, we were thought we were going to run out of oil. There was something called peak oil. and. Uh, and everybody believed it, except a few people. And uh, there was a professor here, Moria Edelman, once again, where, which some of you know, who uh, I love talking to and, uh, about this subject and others. And so I pay homage to Maury in my book. I'd like to read a couple paragraphs uh, about Maury. Professor Morris Edelman, now deceased, was an economist at MIT and an expert, in my opinion, the expert on the oil and gas industry. In 2001, Maury gave a talk in a meeting I was running. He started by saying, people always ask me when we're going to run out of oil. The answer is never. You can hear some laughter in, from the room, but Maury was not trying to be funny. He was quite serious. In his view as an economist, if we started to run out of oil, the cost would rise. At some point, the cost would rise to a level where we would have found substitutes for oil, leaving the remaining oil in the ground. We will never extract every drop of oil from the earth. Through much of his career, Maury was a voice in the wilderness. People wanted to believe in peak oil because it made so much sense. I vividly remember a talk we had after another prediction got a lot, uh, on peak oil got a lot of press. I asked how people can still believe 
in a theory that was always wrong. The proponents always blamed their failures on faulty data. Paraphrasing his answer, oil follows, oil follows the laws of supply and demand just like every other commodity. However, people don't view oil simply as a commodity. They view it like a religion. So uh, the last thing I'll say on fossil fuels is what happens if we go ahead and burn all those fossil fuels? What would do that do to the uh, environment? If we did burn all our recoverable fossil fuels and emitted the CO2 to the atmosphere, the global temperature would rise by about 9 degrees centigrade. That's about 16 degrees Fahrenheit. Remember, we're at about 1 degree centigrade now, and um, there's a debate how much we're seeing is, is due to climate change, but uh, needless to say, 9 degrees centigrade is probably not where we want to go. So um, let me uh, go into carbon capture now and have a reading that, that starts at the, uh, the chapter here. In the, high, in the high desert, about 250 kilometers northeast of Los Angeles, is the Searles Valley Minerals Plant. This plant produces a number of chemicals, such as soda ash, from the brines that they mine. The manufacturing process requires significant quantities of carbon dioxide to carbonate the brines, and being in a remote area, it would be very expensive to transport CO2 to the site. Carbon capture, as it turns out, provides a cheaper solution. In 1978, then-owner North American Chemical built the process to capture up to 800 tons per day of CO2 from a coal-fired boiler. This process, based on a mean technology, was originally patented in the 1930s. However, 1978 was the first time amines were adapted for use on a coal-fired boiler exhaust known as flue gases. In fact, it was the first implementation of carbon capture on any type of boiler. Constructed well before people considered carbon capture for climate mitigation, this project demonstrated that carbon capture was feasible on flue gas from fossil fuel combustion. So if we go to the next slide. Here, oops. Um, what we have is a little schematic of the amine process. I'm not going to go in, in a lot of detail here, um, but the, the, the heart of the process are two columns. This is called the absorber column, and this is called, whoops, this is called the stripper column. We have the flue gas from the power plant coming into the bottom of this column. This column is packed with materials that create a lot of surface area for contacting uh, between the flue gas and the solvent, which in this case is an amine, that uh, flows down the column. And what happens is the uh, amine attracts the CO2 out of the flue gas and chemically binds with it. So coming out of the column, uh, you can capture 90, 95% of the CO2 from the flue gas and send it here. Now, uh, the solvents are expensive, so we want to reuse it. So we have a stripper column where we drive the CO2 out of the, uh, away from the solvent so we can recycle the solvent back to the absorber. Here we generate steam. Uh, so this reboiler provides energy to generate steam to go up the column. The solvent comes down the column, and the reverse happens. The, the steam strips the CO2 out of the solvent 
uh, and brings it to the top of the column. Here you have water and CO2. Water is easy to separate mainly by condensation, and, uh, uh, and you do this during compression, and you uh, compress the CO2s, so you can then transport it by pipeline, and you come out with CO2 that's uh, over 99% uh, pure. So let me uh, just uh, tell you why we use a means uh, with, with this little reading here. Of the many potential solvents for chemical scrubbing of CO2, presently amines have proven to be the best. It's a Goldilocks solution because the attraction between the amines, a weak base, and CO2, a weak acid, is not too strong and not too weak, but just right. If the attraction were too weak, it would result in extremely large and costly absorbers. If the attractions were too strong, a simple temperature swing would not be able to regenerate the amine. I should have mentioned in doing this process that this, this operates at a cooler temperature, about 50 degrees centigrade, and this operates at, at a hotter temperature, about 110 uh, degrees centigrade. So uh, you regenerate it through what's called a uh, temperature swing. So now we've captured the CO2, and the question becomes, what to do with the CO2? That is the question. Should we put it back in the earth from whence it came? Should we sell it as a feedstock to make useful products, thereby recouping at least some of the cost of capture? Should we turn it into rocks, stabilizing it for millions of years? Researchers are exploring all of these options. Um, the one that, I, you know, that holds the most promise is putting it deep in the earth. It's called geologic storage. Geologic storage of CO2 is the mirror image of oil and gas production. Instead of drilling wells in the earth to extract oil and gas, wells are drilled to inject the CO2. So one question people always have <clears throat> when we put the CO2 into the earth is, will it stay there? And this is a diagram from uh, the Intergovernmental uh, um, Panel on Climate Change, a special report on carbon capture and storage, and shows the mechanisms that keeps the CO2 in the ground. Now, three of these mechanisms are pretty easy to explain. Uh, this structural and stratigraphic trapping, well, that just means um, you keep it in, it's like you have a container in the ground to keep it in. So you generally inject the CO2 into sandstone, some porous layer and permeable layer like sandstone. And then a lot of times above the sandstone layer, you have a, a layer of shale where the CO2 can't move through. So it acts like a, a cap, it's called the cap rock, and keeps the CO2 in, in place. Uh, what we mean here by solubility trapping is uh, these layers have water, and it actually brines very salty water, and the CO2 can dissolve into the water. So solubility trip, over time, the CO2 will dissolve into the water uh, uh, in, in the formation. I should mention these formations are generally uh, uh, fairly deep, deeper than 800 meters. Uh, and finally, mineral trapping talks about a, a longer-term mechanism where the CO2 actually reacts with the rocks in the formation and precipitates out, usually as a, a carbonate rock. So those mechanisms, I think, are, are fairly straightforward to understand. But how do you uh, talk about residual CO2 trapping? And Jake sort of uh, 
uh, alluded to this, and I will uh, read that section here. So, capillary trapping, sometimes referred to as residual trapping, refers to the CO2 being immobilized in the pore space as the plume moves through the formation. So it's getting trapped in the, uh, in the pore space uh, of the sandstone, of the sand in, in the formation. It's a function of water and CO2 competing to move through the small pores between sand grains. A capillary trapping situation that most of us can understand, can relate to, is the dripping of oil on our shirt while eating. You try to rub out the stain using water, but that will not work. The oil is trapped in the holes between the fibers. In this sense, capillary trapping is a very secure storage mechanism. So, so yeah, so one of the challenges in writing this book is trying to explain pretty complicated scientific things. In fact, first time I was introduced to capillary trapping, I had a hard time uh, really understanding because they start talking to you, throw out words like um, relative permeability and throw all these mathematical equations at, at you. So, um, so and, and I will say, uh, I, I credit this to uh, Sue Havorka at the University of Texas. She's, you know, I didn't think this that up myself. So I have stolen, over the years, I, I have stolen. It's like a good comedian. I steal things from lots of people. So, um, the, okay. So, we actually have um, uh, examples of uh, CO2, and this is, so I, so I have a chapter on um, of what I call CO2 in action. Uh, about uh, some of the big installations. And this is Sleipner, so let me read about this. Sleipner is the name of an eight-legged horse in Norse mythology. It is also the name of the world's first commercial CCS project. Located in the North Sea about, excuse me, 240 kilometers off the coast of Norway, Sleipner has been storing about one million tons of CO2 per year since October 1996. The source of the CO2 is from the natural gas produced at the platform, where CO2 concentration is about 9%. Before shipping the gas to customers, the CO2 concentration needs to be reduced to under 2.5%. At many gas fields around the world, this is accomplished using a mean technology. Unique to Sleipner, however, this is the world's first installation where the CO2 removal takes place on an offshore platform. So that's this platform here is where they're processing the CO2. The captured CO2 is then compressed and injected underneath the platform in the Utsira Formation, a sandstone layer lying up one kilometer beneath the North Sea. While there are commercial carbon capture projects that predate Sleipner, their motivation was to produce CO2 for use in commercial markets. Sleipner marked the first instance of carbon dioxide being stored in geologic formation because of climate considerations. Uh, more recently, there's been two projects uh, at coal-fired power plants that captured the CO2, one up in Canada and, and one in Texas. The Texas one is uh, Petronova that we see here. And I think uh, it's interesting in these projects to understand the motivation of why the company does it. So this, this is a, a plant owned by NRG, and once again, it uses a mean to separate it, but I, I talk a little about why, you know, 
why this project got the green light. There were some government uh, incentives and stuff, but still, why, why did NRG go ahead of it? And it was really um, one man that really uh, uh, drove this project. That was David Crane, who was the then CEO, uh, no longer uh, with NRG. And so I'll read a little about that. At initiation, this project aligned well with NRG's business strategy. The CEO of NRG at that time was David Crane, who strongly felt the future was in clean energy. As he said in his resignation letter, the new frontier of the energy business that I pushed the company into was then and is still now in the long-term best interest of the company's employees, its shareholders, its customers, and the earth we all inhabit. A company that aspires to growth, there is no growth in our sector outside of clean energy. Only slow but irreversible contraction following the past of fixed telephony. So David Crane uh, was a visionary, but maybe he was a little ahead of his times as some of these visions got him forced out of the uh, uh, company, uh, unfortunately. But um, next, um, next I want to move into the chapter on negative emissions. And this is something that's going to get, I think, a lot more play when uh, the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees C's comes out in, uh, I think that it comes out October, well, they have a press release October 8th on it. And uh, uh, negative emissions will be, uh, will be in that report. And probably, as I say, just like uh, the press likes to pick up on uh, uh, things like geoengineering, I think the press will pick up on negative emissions also. So let me uh, start with a little introduction. To remove allergens and other contaminants from the air inside your home, one can buy an air purifier. Just imagine if we had an air purifier to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. We can go about our business as usual, spewing CO2 from our cars, homes, and factories without needing to worry about reducing or eradicating these emissions. Our CO2 air purifier will eliminate our climate change concerns just as today's air purifiers eliminate our concerns about indoor air quality. The idea is very seductive. As a result, interest has been growing in what is termed carbon dioxide removal as a way to address climate change. The concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is very dilute, about 0.04%. That's 400 ppm. Nevertheless, there are a number of technologies, referred to as negative emissions technologies, or NETs, which can remove CO2 from the atmosphere. How big a role NETs can play is a, top, is a, is a uh, topic of considerable disagreement. So what are these NETs? And we have a, have a list here. And the top two uh, deal directly with carbon capture, and I talk about them more, more in the book bioenergy with CCS, and that's the one that a lot of the uh, big models uh, are attributing most of the negative emissions to. Something called direct air capture, which uh, I have commented on quite a bit as being, uh, uh, there's actually, you can capture CO2 out of the air with solvents and the like, but it's very expensive. There are some companies doing it, and just like any company doing it, they make a lot of claims. And uh, every time they make a claim, uh, it seems they get a lot of calls from the press wanting to counterbalance that claim a little. And this is, I think, uh, where Jake talks about the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, 
You know, it, it, if you take something from a power plant and want to capture it, it's one thing. If you take it and dilute it by a factor of 300 and then want to capture it, it's going to cost you a lot more money. And that's just uh, uh, the way it is. There's other things. A lot of these are, are, are associated with biology, uh, such as uh, afforestation, reforestation, uh, 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 things in the agriculture like um, uh, uh, changing uh, uh, your tilling practices, uh, biochar, very controversial thing. Then there's some things that have to do with enhanced weathering, which are even more speculative. Things like uh, uh, ocean fertilization, which I think uh, there's still people that talk about it. But I think it's fairly uh, much um, uh, off, the, off the agenda uh, from, from a lot of people because of the, uh, at least the environmental impacts, as well as we're not sure how well it works. So, so these are uh, the different negative emissions technologies, and I'll read a few things about how I, you know, so it's a very controversial thing, you know, especially, you know, can we overshoot our one and a half or two degree and bring us back? That's, that's one of the big questions that's, that's being asked, and there's a lot of papers in the literature, a lot of, the numbers go all over the place. People are sometimes very optimistic, sometimes pessimistic. So let me read to you uh, my view on it. One way to view the role of nets is as an offset. This means that the amount of CO2 removed from the atmosphere generates credits that offset emissions elsewhere. That role exists today with implementation of local, national, and international climate policies, including the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol. These projects mainly involve afforestation and reforestation. With the publication of the IPCC Assessment Report 5, the, um, which I'll refer to as AR5, the proposed role of NETS expanded significantly. AR5 presented a number of emissions reduction scenarios, raising questions whether mitigation efforts alone would achieve the goal of stabilization below 2 degrees C. Policies around the world are developing too slowly, so realistically, there's not enough time to deploy the required mitigation technologies before the carbon budget associated with stabilization at two degrees C's runs out. If that proves to be the case, the only way to achieve two degrees C stabilization goal will be to overshoot it and then eventually return to it by removing CO2 from the atmosphere through the deployment of nets. Here's my view of nets. The role as an offset is very sound, with some deployment already happening today and increased deployment expected in the future. The role of nets to compensate for breaking the, the carbon budget and overshooting stabilization targets may be more hope than right reality. However, the hope is being fueled by a big, a big interest in developing and, and deploying nets. More and more people are embracing this concept because it excuses pushing hard policy decisions regarding emission reductions down the road. However, despite this increased in interest in nets, the technical, economic, and environmental barriers are real. There is a good chance we cannot count on nets in the long term to compensate for our failure to do enough mitigation in the near term. So the, uh, so the final, I'll get moving to the, penultimate chapter here where I talk a little about uh, politics and policies, but uh, just to sum up 
what I see some of the real strengths of, uh, of carbon capture and storage, sort of unique features of it, um, is it, it produces dispatchable power, uh, low carbon dispatchable power, as opposed to intermittent power from, from wind and solar, and it's much more dispatchable than, say, uh, uh, from nuclear. So that's an important niche in, in our electricity systems. Um, it's the primary option uh, for energy-intensive industry like cement, refineries, petrochemicals, and iron and steel, where uh, 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 things like renewables um, uh, will have a, a very hard time um, um, fitting in, especially since a lot of these industries, uh, CO2 doesn't come just from energy use, but from the process itself. Uh, it's the only mitigation technology that can rescue possibly hundreds of trillions of dollars of stranded fossil assets. Uh, the question is, will we really leave all those fossil assets in the ground? Uh, uh, will countries uh, really develop policies to do that? This is a way we, we can uh, use some of those assets. And also provides a major pathway to negative emissions when combined with biomass uh, fire power plants. Um, so those, those are some of its strengths. And a comment on the politics uh, of CCS, as Jake said, I've been around a while, and um, well, I'll just read what I wrote. When I first started working on carbon capture technologies in 1989, I anticipated that the field would bring together both sides of the political spectrum. On the right, carbon capture meant we could address climate change without ending our use of fossil fuels. On the left, it meant another technology was available to listen the fight against climate change. It turns out that I cannot have been more wrong. I did not foresee that over the years, climate change would turn into a very partisan issue in the United States. Hard to believe that it was Republican President George H.W. Bush who negotiated and signed the United Nations framework on climate change. Just as astonishing, the U.S. Senate ratified the treaty by the necessary two-thirds vote. How times have changed. The right hates anything to do with climate change, even if it could benefit fossil fuels. Similarly, the left hates anything to do with fossil fuels, even if it could help mitigate climate change. One can say that carbon capture has become an orphan technology. So, I'm going to end the talk with talking about the future. And uh, I'll start by saying, <clears throat> So what does the future hold for carbon capture? According to the great American philosopher and baseball player, Yogi Berra, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Taking the sage advice, I will avoid outright predictions and instead explore key determinants for the future of carbon capture, specifically the evolution of climate policy and the evolution of energy technology. So what I'm saying there is, if you don't have good, strong climate policy, we don't need carbon capture. Carbon capture is there to address climate change. We don't have policy that's going to um, uh, lead us on a path to reduce our emissions of CO2 to the atmosphere. We're not going to have markets available for, for climate to go. Evolution of energy technologies, there's a lot of different technologies that can play a role. How they evolve, evolve will be very uh, important. 
You know, will there be a breakthrough in nuclear? We have this fusion thing at MIT. Will that ever come to fruition? I'm, I'm not staying up late uh, worrying about that. But, uh, but, but there's all sorts of things that can happen. And it's very hard to predict the future uh, in, in terms of energy technology. But, it, but you can say that innovation is going to be a, a key to solving the problem. So I'm going to end. I'm going to spoil the book for you and read you the ending. So, uh, but the journey is just as important. So here, here's the ending. Although I think it's inevitable we will exceed the 2 degrees C temperature stabilization goal, I do think we will stabilize at some higher level. I remain a, fir I remain a firm believer that technological change will be critical in achieving this stabilization. However, this change does not magically appear. It requires investments from government and industries and policies to create markets that provide the incentives to develop new technologies. What we are doing today is inadequate. We must pick up the pace and broaden the portfolio of options. We cannot predict the future very well, but the decisions we make today will shape the future. Our grandchildren and their children will judge us by those decisions. What will be our legacy? What type of world will we be leaving them? And uh, these sentences uh, hit home because yesterday I got my third grandchild. So, so I ended right there. Okay. About 35 years ago, I was on a radio program. I, it was a call-in show, and I talked about climate change, and we had some call-ins. And I must have talked about CCS because uh, one of the caller-in said, why don't we just store it in tires when you inflate your tire and inflate it with CO2? I was wondering if you had an answer for that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> only, only if they're tires for electric cars, John. <laughs> or, or, or we can take it... Yeah, we can invent something to take it from the tailpipe right into the tires. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I guess I'm not controlling. Okay. Let them control them. Thanks for this presentation. Can you talk about some of the weaknesses of carbon capture, both storage and utilization? Okay. Well, it costs money. It's not the cheapest uh, option uh, that you have. So, so cost is... Um, I think uh, one thing, but I, I think a lot of the models show that if we are going to get down to stabilization, that the cost of doing it will be well above uh, what it costs to, to, to do now. Uh, so that's one problem. I mean, we don't have, in terms of the storage, we don't have a lot of experience. Now, all signs point that it should work, but really need a lot of more uh, experience doing it. So. It's sort of ironic that um, we aren't doing a lot of um, work on, on storage. So there is some things like Sleipner, but uh, in general, uh, we don't have a lot of large-scale storage demonstrations. Uh, what mo they've been doing mostly for storage is putting it uh, into oil fields for enhanced oil recovery, which uh, in the long term is not going to do it. They're doing it because of economics. And so the biggest cost of doing a storage project is the cost of CO2. So we have all this CO2 that we want to get rid of, but the, 
but uh, to, to do a storage project on it, it costs money because the cost is in capturing and, and basically concentrating uh, uh, the CO2. The demonstrations to date have been uh, fairly positive, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's both, I think, uh, you need to get more knowledge, but also you need these demonstrations because I think, uh, you know, for public acceptance. Uh, obviously, when you're talking about putting lots of CO2 under the ground there where somebody lives, uh, there, there can be, uh, there can and will be uh, questions. So I think those are some of the uh, things. You know, you're going to have to do pipeline networks, as we saw what happened up on the North Shore here uh, in the Merrimack Valley, you know, people are adverse to pipeline and infrastructures. Um, but I would say for a lot of the uh, technology, even if you want to do a lot of renewables, people talk about need for a lot more transmission lines, a lot of infrastructure. Uh, so how you build infrastructure uh, in these, this time is going to be a big problem. So there, there's lots of barriers. I don't think any are insurmountable, but those are some. Yes. Oops. Move it up to here then. Hello. Oh. Um, Becker and uh, Jacobson have estimated the requirement for seasonal storage in connection with deep energy option. Um, in Denmark, one of the efforts that they're making is to try to develop electrolysis of CO2 and hydrogen, make uh, methane and pump that into their existing gas distribution network. Uh, do you have any idea about how, how many times more expensive uh, <laughs> natural gas made that way compared to, say, Siberian gas from, from Russia? Well, I, I don't have exact numbers, but, but it's a lot more expensive. I, I, I wrote a paper on uh, utilization of CO2. We are talking about things like they're doing in Denmark. And um, it, it's, uh, and we actually compared it to, say, uh, the carbon capture approach and and until you the answer is until you decarbonize your electricity system it isn't really worth even thinking about because you need you need energy you know you need the energy to create the hydrogen uh, for instance um, but so I, I don't have a number but it's it I mean to me it, it's um, very, very expensive. And, and the CO2 that you're going to use, you need to get the CO2 from a non-fossil source. Uh, otherwise, you know, when you, you make natural gas, it can go back in the atmosphere. So you can't put any new CO2 in the atmosphere. It has to be a non-fossil source with either biomass or this uh, direct air capture. And, and those are, once again, so it's not only expensive for the hydrogen and, 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 the, the, and the reaction, but also um, uh, the... Um, uh, CO2, and every time you do these conversions, you lose energy, so that's more cost. So I, I don't have an exact number, but uh, it's, pro it's probably, uh, I mean, my, it's, it's way more than double. It's probably, uh, maybe be triple and quadruple. Yeah, well, that could be true. 
you know, I don't have the exact number. But that that sounds like a reasonable number. Okay, uh, we got the front row here. Two questions. I'll let you guys fight over the mic. <laughs> Will it be necessary to do long uh, time scale experiments to see how long CO two is trapped in the Earth? Well, <laughs> we you don't want to wait to do the experiments before you actually do it because. Uh, uh, we don't have that much time uh, uh, to do the mitigation. Um, Was there a middle ground? There's, I mean, it's, it's, a it's been discussed a lot. Uh, when I, I worked on the IPCC report, it was one of the questions that, that aroused and the, uh, the secretariat wanted an answer. And it, it was one of the two issues that caused the uh, bloody battles, shall we say. The utilization was the other issue. Um, so they, they basically said, if you choose the right reservoir, so we'll put an asterisk there, whatever that means, uh, they, they expect less than 1% leakage over 1,000 years. Um, so uh, from the tests we've had so far, you, you don't see a, a, a lot of leakage. Uh, you, you hardly see any, you don't, don't really see any. So I think the real key there is, is doing the, the right sites. But, you know, we don't have the luxury of uh, doing an experiment and winning 20 years and then being able to, re you know, repeat it because we, you know, we need to start doing the mitigation right away. And, and you know, with the CCS, you know, we're talking, you know, we want to start ramping up uh, by mid-century and then after that, I think, you know, I think you see more of it in the, in the second half. But I will say there have been some natural analogs they've looked at, but the geological formations are so heterogeneous, it, it, you know, there's going to be some that are not good and you don't want to put it there, but I think a lot of them work pretty well. Well, I was a little disappointed not to get more cost figures. Let me ask you, okay. uh, I was trying to take your processes and decompose them into an absorber phase where the cost driver was the gross amount of gas and a stripper phase where the cost driver was the amount of CO2 that was absorbed. And I couldn't make the numbers match up at all. Uh, so, it yeah. would seem that if you believe your $1,000 uh, per ton of CO2 for direct air capture, assign all the cost to the absorber phase, which is unrealistic, you've got only 40 cents per ton of air for the cost of absorbing this stuff, which would make all these processes look very different if that were true. So you're talking about the direct air capture? I'm talking about both. Okay. Uh, so I, I can't make the numbers be consistent so, between so the processes. If you do these today, if you do a plant like this today because it's, it's, it's a first mover, it'll probably, probably cost you on the order of $100 per ton. We've done a, a lot of cost studies that make you, you, we think you can do an nth plant with today's technology for uh, maybe $60 a ton. A lot of the cost is here in the energy you use. Yeah. About two-thirds of the energy is steam for the reboiler. Another third is... Uh, for the compression. The absorber doesn't really use it much energy. It's a little blower to overcome the pressure drop, it, but it's all it's capital cost. 
So, as I said, if, if, if your solvent is too weak, if three actions, your absorbers are getting big and your capital costs go up. Well, I, it's hard to dis, disassociate because it, it's one big process. They're, they're you know, it, it's, um, you know, it, it affects everything. So things that you do here affect there. So how, how, you know, how well you strip, you know, the difference between your lean loading and your, and, right, yeah. So, 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 but if you want me to talk about when you go to direct air capture, what's the difference? First of all, you can't use the temperature swing like this, or um, it, it's um, what you have here is the um, partial pressure of the CO2 in the air is a factor 300 different than it is from a power plant. So you need so some people use stronger solvents like hydroxides, which means then you have to have a very complicated chemical process to regenerate uh, uh, the hydroxides. Um, Others are, are, are used, there, there's one process that use solids and means, and they use sort of a, a temperature pressure combination. They draw a vac, they, they heat it up and then draw a vacuum. So, uh, but you are putting through, in your absorber, you're putting through 300 times the amount uh, of air. And that, that, well, it depends on your pressure drop. If you do the calculations, just a small change in pressure drop is a big change in cost, uh, of energy cost. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I wrote a paper on it so you can look at it, but it, it's, you have to look at each specific thing. There's one, yeah, I, it, it may be, especially when you look at an avoided basis, but um, it, it, there's a whole range of, of things. The, the company in, Nor in uh, Switzerland, Climeworks, claims about $600 a ton, but they have some special things that make their process cheaper. So. Um, Howie, um, congratulations. Um, it sounds uh, like a very good book. And the thing from what you've read that I think will be most valuable is the manner in which it's written. Because what? The manner in which it's written, very accessible. Because I think there's a tremendous need for a much broader audience than just highly technical folks to talk about these things and understand them. Um, I, my, my only hope is that just like 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of things that are becoming very widespread now in renewable technologies that were being looked at as high in the sky, way too expensive, that a similar thing will happen with this uh, since some things like the industrial aspects of it are very hard to avoid. Uh, and I would just observe that, you know, not only do we have uh, the, in the Carolinas this week, but today is the anniversary of Maria, where, uh, in which, you know, there are people who are still barely recovering from that, and last year we had, you know, Harvey, Irma, Maria. So I think the, the prospects of, you know, some people make light of it, the prospects of two degrees centigrade increase or even beyond, I mean, I, I don't see how uh, society is ready to deal with it. Uh, so I think, no, so I'm, I'm just, uh, basically reiterating that I think this is very timely and I like, and I'm particularly grateful for the manner in which you wrote it. I mean, I, just based on the, the reading, so congrats. I have one. Okay. Is there OGCI, sorry, Aurora? Okay. 
I'm just curious, so Exxon and Chevron joined the OGCI today. Um, you have any hope there? And one of the priorities of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative is for them to invest in... Yeah, Exxon and Chevron both yes. joined. Yeah, so Mike... I was and, surprised, too. And <laughs> as you know, one of their priorities is uh, carbon capture. I'm right. curious about what your you know, thoughts are, what kind of hope we can have that they'll invest some serious money. Well, I mean, they are putting, I mean, each company, I think, is committed to $10 million. Is that maybe more? But, but, but I mean, they're, they're grouping some research. I, I mean, let me generalize that to what we need. I, th I think, and I talk about it in the book a little, you need both technology push and you need market pull. I mean, you, you just cannot invest enough in research to make up for uh, what the market incentives could be. I mean, the market will be more, but I think you need both um, uh, of, of what you have. I, I think Jake's surprised. Am I, uh, both Jake and I worked with Exxon a lot, and Exxon just does not uh, join ventures like this. I mean, in fact, they've always been proud of not joining ventures like this. So it's sort of a surprise. I'll have to talk to our uh, colleagues on Exxon and, and see what, uh, what their thought process was. But um, yeah, I, I'm even surprised Chevron a little. Um, but so uh, there, there must be, I mean, there must be pressure on them uh, to do it. So, you know, well, well you know, I, I mean, I think it's a positive thing, but by itself, it's not going to solve the problem. It's just one small part, or maybe a, a, a bigger than a small part, but it's just one part of, of what we need. And, and I think, you know, uh, the biggest problem right now is like the United States government is just not, not only not providing leadership, but you know, it's going backwards. And um, so it'll be interesting. Just end that. It'll be interesting uh, in a couple of weeks when the um, IPC special report on 1.5 degrees C works, and they're going to be talking about we got to be over here, and we're over here today, and there's going to be this giant gap. It'll be interesting to see how people uh, uh, talk about it. So, anyways, so. Thank you, Howie, and thanks for all the work you've been doing. I'll be I'll be happy to sign books. Uh, I'll stick around and happy to do that.